Hey guys, Samantha here. A quick note before we start the show. If you aren't already subscribed to and enjoying the Uncovering Unexplained Mysteries podcast, go give their latest episode a listen. It's episode number 71, and we joined Mike and Josh to talk about a couple of awesome Unsolved Mysteries segments, including one that's not on Amazon Prime. We had so much fun doing it, and really we feel honored to have been invited onto their show. Mike and Josh are the original Unsolved Mysteries podcasters, and they have been so supportive of us. Not only that, but they're just super hilarious. So go check them out, and if you haven't already reviewed their show on iTunes, give them a 5 out of 5 Robert Stacks and tell them that Liz and Samantha sent you. Hi, Liz. Hey, tell me, what are you most looking forward to for over Thanksgiving break? Is it stuffing your face with turkey or going Black Friday shopping? Uh, no, obviously it's binge-watching Forensic Files, <laughs> which is what I assume everyone is looking forward to over their Thanksgiving weekend. Yes. Isn't that right? Perhaps that's, it's you, that's five listeners. Welcome to the Thanksgiving with Forensic Files special. <laughs> Which is unsolved mysteries adjacent, I would say. Yeah. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, I'm constantly acting like I have expertise on unsolved mysteries because of shit I saw in Forensic Files. Right. So. Which the only thing Forensic Files really teaches you is how to make bad puns. Because every episode title is a bad pun. Yes. It teaches you that. It teaches you. And this is not true, but it's true within Forensic Files that it's impossible to get away with crimes. Because you'll leave like one eyelash behind and it'll be traced back to you. Mm -hmm. Don't think that's how it usually works. But those cases are always highlighted. So you're like, fuck, I can't do anything. No, I'll never. I'm going to have to be a law-abiding citizen forever. Because one one skin cell will give me away. (laughs) So we've picked out some particularly interesting episodes of Forensic Files to talk about. The first one does kind of have to do with Thanksgiving. So it, it sort of makes sense. I wanted to binge something that wasn't Unsolved Mysteries. Yeah. Just for a little bonus, a little extra. Sure. Give you some ideas if you have Netflix and you want to just sit down and forget the world and watch. I mean. Listen to that soothing voice. What's his name? The narrator? Peter Thomas. Okay. I remember Not Rob time. Thomas. Not Rob Thomas. <laughs> he has a lovely voice. I mean, one episode of Forensic Files is great, but eight episodes of Forensic Files, perfect. <laughs> Exactly. I mean, the more the merrier. Before we get started, do you have any updates? I feel like I did, and now (laughs) I can't even remember. I have an update. Oh, okay. So on behalf of the podcast, I went on our first Find a Grave volunteer mission. Oh, that's right. You signed us up as volunteers. Yes. So when I made an account on Find a Grave, if you aren't a dedicated listener to our podcast and haven't listened to every episode which we once talked about what yeah what are you doing with your life but also (laughs) liz gave a recommendation for this website called find a grave which i had not heard of previously but it's a website where you can go on and you can look up graves for your loved ones or family members famous people Mm -hmm. whatever there's also an aspect of the website where if you want a picture of a grave and you're not nearby the cemetery, you can submit a request and volunteers in the area receive the request and go out and take photos and find the grave and take a photo and upload it to the website. So when I made an account for the podcast so that we could sponsor Curly Green's Find a Grave page, sure. I checked the box for yes, I would like to be a volunteer. And then last Friday I was off work and received a request for a cemetery that's like a minute from my house. 
Amazing. And in my mind, I was like, well, what am I doing today? Just sitting around on my couch. I might as well go walk around the I cemetery. I might as well go literally find a grave. Even though it was like 12 degrees in Minnesota. Sure. And- Sure. It turns out cemeteries are big places and it's kind of hard <laughs> to find to find a grave. But I did find one. So there were two requests I discovered for the cemetery by my house. Okay. The one that came in on Friday and then another one that hadn't been fulfilled. So I went and I looked around and I did find uh Doreen Comer, Cortar, I can't I can't recall her last name, but I okay. found her grave. It was kind of a miracle that I found it because I hadn't anticipated the fact that it's fall in Minnesota, and so the ground is covered in leaves. Right. So like every marker, like every other marker, the ones that are flat on the ground are completely covered in leaves, and I wasn't going to brush off the leaves from every marker. So I only looked at the ones that were upright. And the other thing about the cemetery by my house is that half of it is historic, and it's separated oh, okay. by a street. So much like the Soldiers and Pioneer Cemetery we talked about visiting, people aren't buried on that half anymore. It was for, first built in the 1800s. And had I been smarter about this and looked at the request, I would have seen that this woman died in 2015, and I probably would have gone to the newer side. Right. But I didn't, and I just wanted to walk around the historic part. <laughs> sure, it, it was cool. cool. Yeah. <laughs> and her family must have a plot, because she was buried with a lot of other people with the same last name, and I happened... To find it. The other thing I found, which was cool, and I'll post it on our Instagram page, is I live in a suburb of St. Paul, and apparently there was a, a Native American burial mound um, oh. that was destroyed when they put up the town. Oh. Yeah. So in, what? Poltergeist style. <laughs> so in this area, in the St. Paul area, there's a lot of Native American burial mounds, and you can see them. They're very distinct, large mounds. There's actually a Mounds Park in St. Paul where you can go and you can see them. Um, apparently there was one mound in the, in our town and it was destroyed when they put up the town. So there was a, that's awful. It is really awful. So there's a, they put up a marker finally in the eighties that whatever remains they recovered and saved from when they destroyed the mound, they buried (laughs) in the cemetery and put up a little, (laughs) I want to cry. It was really sad. And I, the only reason I saw it was because there was kind of a bench by the memorial where I assume you can kind of, they intended for people to be able to sit and pay their respects, but it was covered in what from a distance looked like little toys. Oh, so I came closer to see what this was. And it was actually native American figurines. People had decorated the bench and the memorial with native American um, symbols and artifacts, and it was really nice. I took a photo. I didn't. I wish I would have taken a photo of the whole thing, but I felt weird already traipsing around the cemetery. Sure. That I was like, maybe I'm not just gonna like be paparazziing and like taking photos of every <laughs> of every grave as people are walking by. Like, what is this woman doing? But they, anyway, I just wanted to mention it because I think it would be a fun thing to do in the summer. Just like go for a walk, basically around a cemetery. Yeah, and, and help someone out. Find get a, a grave photo of their relatives grave and, and yeah and now on this woman's respects. find a grave page it says photo contributed by the perhaps it's you podcast amazing <laughs> so i love it so much so that was a lot but i just wanted to mention that no that's great i'll definitely do more in the summer yeah not now because it's getting really cold here sure um oh so my update was i recommended what i called the chicago surgical museum that's not his name oh <laughs> I don't know why I didn't bother to get the correct name of something I was recommending. I apologize. It's actually no one questioned it. The International Museum of Surgical Science. Oh, it's in Chicago. Close. It's about surgery. Whatever. I'm sorry. (laughs) 
I'm sure if you Google Chicago Surgical Museum, that's the one that it does. It does. It's just that's what I call it, apparently, but that's not what it calls itself. Sure. Okay. Well, Um, also, our resident librarian, Megan, sent in a photo from the area of the Kurt McFall death. Where there is a sign. Was warning- that the actual area? Yes. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> warning That's amazing. You, warning you of both the dangerous cliffs and the po- the potential for drowning. And she was like, hmm, I think I solved the Kurt McFall <laughs> mystery. So if you want to see that photo, I put that on Facebook. That's amazing. It's literally a sign that shows a stick figure falling off a cliff and then drowning. Yeah. Well, yeah. I'm assuming they put that up. After his death, I, but... I assume so. Eh. I didn't know that that photo was from the actual place where he died. Thanks, Megan. Thanks, Megan. That's really cool. It's a totally normal thing to do. <laughs> Thanks, sure. Megan. Sure. Um, well, we better get into it because yeah, we, we got have a, a lot, got a to, lot talk to talk about. about. So the first Forensic Files episode that we're talking about, if you would like to watch it yourself and you have Netflix... Everything we're talking about today is from Collection 8, Season 8. Very long season. Don't know There's how that 48 works. 48 episodes. <laughs> Don't know how that I works. I know, because I watched the 48. Yeah. Uh, so, see, we're talking about Season 8, Episode 1, Southside Strangler. <laughs> uh, this is not a happy case, but it is an important historic case. And it takes place shortly after Thanksgiving in 1987. An intruder broke into the Tucker residence in Arlington, Virginia. He disturbingly bound and raped and murdered his victim. And this crime, quote unquote, launched a new era in police investigations, Peter Ooh. Thomas tells you. Because DNA and psychological profiling both caught a killer and set an innocent man free. Which, good. It's, both it's always good when <laughs> DNA does that. Good on both of those counts. So, the first victim was 44-year-old Susan Tucker. She was a publications or editor for the Forestry Service. She was spending Thanksgiving alone while her husband was in Wales. And they just seemed like the sweetest couple. Yeah. And he loved her so much and has an amazing accent. So, <laughs> Which is always a bonus. Which is always a bonus. <laughs> um, so, she had suddenly stopped answering his phone calls and then her neighbors noticed that one of her windows was wide open despite the cold weather in November. Yeah. So the police were called. They found Susan's body face down in the bed. She'd been dead for four to five days. As I referred to earlier, her hands and feet were bound behind her back. She had been strangled and possibly raped. Possibly raped. Okay. Whatever. Well, I guess. Yeah. They didn't know. We can infer from that. The killer was in the home for some time, but he was very careful. He had worn gloves. He had left no fingerprints. The point of entry at the window had been cleaned off. So this almost sounds like someone who had been watching forensic files, even though. And knew. What to do. Any evidence I leave behind. That one eyelash, that's going to get me. (laughs) They found hairs on the bedding. And the rope and knots used in this murder reminded them of a previous case. Three years earlier, Carolyn Hobb, only four blocks away, had been killed in a similar matter. However, the Cobb case was closed because a man named David Vasquez had confessed to the murder and had been sentenced to 35 years. Also, in Richmond, Virginia, which is about 100 miles away, Similar murders were being investigated. Three women in over a month had been killed in similar so- circumstances, and the rope and knots were identical. 
They also mentioned that killing by strangulation is pretty rare mm-hmm. and that binding your victims is actually pretty rare. Yeah, I didn't know that. You always assume that that's always what they do, right? Because that's what's in the movies. Yeah, I think really, like, we are only paying attention to sort of unusual cases. That's true. But most murders are sort of not planned. I think it's mostly gun violence, right? It's yep. people who knew each other. It's not mysterious. No. So, <laughs> so we're not talking about those cases. That, the idea of uh, someone, a stranger breaking into your window and, and binding you and strangling you to death is is a pretty uncommon occurrence, which mm-hmm. is why it warrants an episode of Friends of Files. Yes. So anyway... They were like, the, the odds that someone would be using the same type of rope and these same type of weird knots. I'm always sort of interested when Forensic Files ends up talking about knots because I, I, I guess I don't know. I wasn't a Boy Scout. I don't know how to make any knots. No, I can tie one type of knot. Yeah, exactly. And- where you just like loop it like a <laughs> shoelace. <laughs> um, but then they're like, oh, because of this, we know that they, he's like a sailor from the Nordic, like blah, blah. Like they use this type of knot. It also seems so, so stupid. Like don't use the same type of knot at all of your murders. Well, look, he had a thing. <laughs> one of his things was strangling and one of his thing was this type of knot. I, I don't know. So, um, <laughs> Detective Joe Jorges was investigating the Tucker murder, and he was convinced that this was the same murderer. But the Richmond police weren't convinced, and obviously those are two different jurisdictions. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, right, because they got the right guy. Oh, okay. So, the Richmond police were, be- were investigating three murders. Oh, that's right. But then David Vasquez had already been convicted for a murder in the Arlington area. Gotcha. And this one detective was like, I think these are all the same guy. So he's getting resistance from people saying, no, this one case is already closed and we got the guy. And he's getting resistance from the Richmond police who are like, don't come in here and tell us, you know. Yeah, tell us us what to do. We're investigating this. Um, But it turned out that the semen stains were consistent between the Tucker and this other case, um, they talk a lot about hair evidence in this. Which they do a lot on Forensic Files. I know. And I just want to say, because uh, I'm an expert, right? <laughs> right? Hair evidence is very dubious. Yes, it has come out yeah. recently that it's and, not, it just hair analysis doesn't really hold up to scientific scrutiny, as it turns out. Yeah. Like, you can, if you can get DNA from a hair follicle and do DNA testing, obviously, yes, that mm-hmm. makes sense. Just comparing some hairs. Not. Is, is, it just comes down to racial profiling. Yeah. Like, you can't tell if a hair is consistent with another. Like, you're basically saying, this is a hair <laughs> from a black guy. Yeah, and so is that. So, so is that. So therefore, it's him. Right. So um, we're just going to not. I'm shaking my head at that whole part of this But it is case. one of those things that is very, it's in our culture, right? Because of all the TV shows, the NCIS, yeah. the what, all the TV shows where they find a hair and it matches the hair at the crime scene. Like people think that it's hard science. Right. But it's really not it's, at all. And think of how many people are in jail right now, probably on little more than hair evidence. Oh, I'm sure. I think it's very interesting, this is sort of related, that Ted Bundy was essentially convicted based on 
teeth mark analysis. Which is also... Which is also highly... I mean, he did it. He conf- right. I'm not a Ted Bundy truther. Yeah. But it's just interesting to me that that's like his downfall when really... They were acting like a tooth mark impression was like a fingerprint, and that's just not true at all. No. So, anyway, dubious science. It's out there. Sometimes on Forensic Files. Sometimes on Forensic Files because this show's been on for a long time. Yeah. And, you know, we know about her now, but are people still in jail? Because they had the hairs of a black man. Very, yes, they are. Yeah. Very possibly. Unfortunately. So the behavioral science unit, which I also know that Samantha <laughs> finds very suspect. Don't, I'm not going to, I'm not going to go off about profiling. I okay. Won't, I won't do it in this episode. Okay. Well, they were brought in to do a profile. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So this is what they said. That he stalked. And I feel like maybe it's just because we watched so many of these shows. I was like, I could have written this profile. You know what I mean? Well. Stalked victims first. He was between the ages of 18 to 30. He was a loner. Aren't they always? Yeah, that's what they always say. He had a menial job. That's Uh also what they always say. He didn't get along with his mom. Also what they always say. Yep. (laughs) Lived near the first crime scene. Which that is true. Like, that is one thing that came, good thing that came out of profiling is like. Well, it's, you sort of, the the first murder, if if someone's committing serial crimes, their first crime is going to be close to them because it's more of a matter of convenience. Mm-hmm. And that as they continue, they'll sort of spread out yes. to to throw suspicion off of themselves. But their first victim is probably someone that they either know or have seen a lot. Mm-hmm. And, and that did fact, they the detectives in this case said that the FBI profile was helpful in that way because then they started looking more at the first case instead of the series of crimes. Yep. But anyway, the profile also very helpfully said, could be any race. Thank you. <laughs> that he wanted the victim, victims to suffer, obviously, and yeah. he had a history of arson. Okay. Yep. Uh, all, all serial killers do, pretty much. Yeah, I'm so skeptical <laughs> of profiling. I mean, I understand. It's another thing, you know, People watch Criminal Minds and think that that's how profiling works, and it's not yeah. really. And real profiling is a lot of guesswork, and that's all I'm going to say about it. I mean, it's... I'll it's, take up the whole podcast talking about profiling. <laughs> yeah, it's only if you have, like, no idea where to look, I guess. It could kind of help you mm-hmm. limit it down, but then it could also cause you to look in the totally wrong direction. Yes. So, And profiling really has to go hand-in-hand hand with s- strong investigation. Like... Profiling alone doesn't catch criminals, right? Actual police work catches criminals. Sure. And a profile could help, but it's not, like, the no. only thing you need, right? It's just not. I mean, I think it was maybe a little bit helpful in this case to focus them on where to look, but this turned out to be a DNA case. So yeah, exactly. Um, DNA evidence was in its infancy at this time. The first time it had been used in a criminal trial was a year earlier in England, and DNA results still took 10 weeks to come back, <laughs> which is just funny because I, I'm i sure many people remember, like, finding DNA in their science class oh, in yeah, high school. <laughs> for sure. But it was such a complicated process at the time that that took 10 weeks. Um, so they started looking for criminals that lived in the area of the first crime, and that led them to Timothy Spencer. 
who was a burglar and arsonist in the area. He was currently living in a halfway house in Richmond, but he would visit his mother in Arlington, Mm -hmm. which connected him to both areas. Um, He was arrested, and the glass fragments were found in his clothing. Those were compared to glass from Susan Tucker's window. This is something forensics loves to talk about with their refractive refractive index. Oh, yes. So... (laughs) Whatever, you can look that up if you're interested. For any episode of Forensic Files, I feel like we'll talk talk to you about refractive index. But also, oh, the DNA matched all cases. So in July 11th, 1988, the trial started. It was the first time DNA was used in a serial murder case. The jury took only seven hours. He was sentenced to death, and he was the first man executed in the U.S. based on DNA evidence. And then David Vasquez, who had confessed falsely confessed to one of the crimes, uh, mm-hmm. was released after serving five years. How amazing for him yeah. that he got out after five years. And people that You often hear about people getting exonerated based on DNA evidence, and they've spent 20, 30 years in prison. I mean, five years. You don't want to spend a day in prison if you don't belong there. But And it's just man. fortunate that this one detective, Joe, yeah. believed in his innocence because he was like, clearly this is a serial pattern. And if he hadn't been... So dedicated to that mm-hmm. case, David Vasquez would have stayed in jail yeah. for sure. And the victims wouldn't have gotten justice. Yeah. So on Unsolved Mysteries, we're talking a lot about police work that didn't really work out, and that's why it's not solved. Mm-hmm. This is a nice instance where at least one person was really on the ball and doing <laughs> their job. Um, they're, they're horrific, horrible crimes. It was not pleasant to think about so keep that in mind if you're going to watch the episode Uh, definitely a trigger warning for that it's such a nightmare to think about when you're home alone right because you're the person you live with is on a trip and someone breaks into your house i mean that's like stuff of it's yeah it's it is it's a really awful crime and um i don't believe in the death penalty but i am glad that he was caught the right man is in prison. The right man was caught and couldn't, because he obviously would have continued doing that. Oh, for sure. So mm-hmm. that is the Southside Strangler. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Go have some turkey now. Yeah. Enjoy your cranberry sauce. Happy Thanksgiving. Speaking of food, let's talk about a biological terrorist attack. This case is so fucking interesting. This is so crazy, you guys. And I'll tell you right now that there's not that much forensics in it. The bulk a of little, it, there a is, little. there's a little, but the bulk of it is just talking about how bananas this whole thing is. The first time I watched this episode with my brother, it, I'm going to just say it blew my mind. Like, I just was like, what? I had heard of this before. It's been mentioned on a number of podcasts, but I had no idea how crazy the story is. Yeah. It's, I just wrote, the, my first note on this case is, this is bonkers. <laughs> So let's start. So the town was called The Dales, and it was perched high above the Columbia River, about 80 miles east of Portland. Les Zeitz is interviewed for the show. He's an investigative reporter, and Les says that when you walk into the The Dales, it feels like you've stepped back into the 1950s. It's like it was frozen in time. So that kind of sets the stage. It's one of those quaint small towns. Mm -hmm. You can get away from it all. And it is really pretty. It's at the foot of this beautiful mountain. There are 11,000 residents, and two of the residents, David and Sandy Lutkins, are interviewed for the show. 
They say that it is the perfect place to raise a family. The town is close to skiing, water recreation areas, and there are good schools and low crime. However, on September 25th, 1984, David and Sandy became violently ill with cramps, diarrhea, and vomiting. They became so high dehydrated that they both became delirious and had to go to the emergency room. Yuck. Yeah, not 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 fun. <laughs> they at the emergency room they discovered that they weren't the only ones in town who were seriously ill. One nurse was interviewed for the show and said that people were laying on the floor, leaning against every wall, filling the lobby. It was basically just crazy town, and they all had the same symptoms. Microbiologists identified the cause of this collective illness as salmonella. And the show explains that salmonella is rarely deadly, although it can be for infants, the elderly, or people with weakened immune systems. And also, it's just not a fun time to have salmonella. Yeah, sounds awful. Ten days after the first outbreak, there was a second wave of salmonella. The number of patients this time exploded from dozens to hundreds. The total number ended up being 751 cases between the two incidents. That's crazy. 10% of the victims were restaurant workers. And they had tended to become ill before their customers. After four days in hell at the hospital, (laughs) David Lutkins gets out to discover that 13 of his employees, almost the entire staff of his small restaurant, had been sickened by salmonella, along with hundreds of his customers. So obviously all the businesses in town took a hit, including Dave's. People didn't want to eat at the places where they thought that the salmonella outbreak had started. I mean, of course. So the mystery is, what was the source of the outbreak? Certainly, food handlers who don't wash their hands after using the bathroom can transmit salmonella. However, hundreds of people were sick, and they had not eaten at the same restaurant or even at the same restaurant chain. Okay, this sounds boring right now. I'm going to say, wait, wait, (laughs) hold on. Hang on to your seat. It goes to such a crazy place that you could not see coming. It's amazing. Yeah, they tested the water supply, didn't have salmonella in it. So they got the CDC involved because they needed to find out if it was an accident or if the outbreak was intentional. And either way, they had to take action. They put epidemiologists on the job, which are scientists who study how diseases move through large populations. But there's Which seemed- sounds like a fun time. <laughs> oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> there seemed to be no common link between the res- the residents. Dave and Sally remember eating a salad at their restaurant shortly before becoming ill. And after some investigating, the CDC discovered that everyone they contacted who had been ill had also eaten eaten a cold salad from one of the 10 local restaurants. But there was no common supplier, so there wasn't, like, one salad, one lettuce distributor that distributed to all of these restaurants. There was seemingly no link. The microbiologists also discovered that all of the victims had come down with the exact same strain of salmonella. And it was an extremely rare strain. This particular type of salmonella doesn't break down sugar. And this characteristic only occurs in 2% of all salmonella. It's also not resistant to antibiotics, which is not common and also terrifying. (laughs) So despite the large number of cases and an inability to definitively link them all, the state of Oregon ruled two months after the outbreak that it was most likely caused by poor hygiene and cross-contamination. And then they they jumped to a... This footage of a huge group of people all wearing what looks at first to be pale pink, but you later discover is actually red. They're very crazily doing the most white people dance you've ever seen Uh in your life. That's true. It's just a huge group of these people. 
yeah, waving their arms and jumping around and if looking really dorky. Remember Hare Krishna's that used to be at the art at the airport? I actually yeah. was just in Los Angeles and I saw some Hare Krishna's and I was like, I didn't know people still did that. But oh, I didn't either. They're still out there apparently. It's it's sort of that vibe, but with red robes. Yes. The narrator says that officials started to suspect a religious cult that existed just outside of town called the Rajneeshis. As the com okay, so the Rajneeshis was this cult that moved into Oregon and created a compound. And as their compound grew, so did tensions between cult leaders and local politicians. A year before the outbreak, one of the cult leaders, a woman by the name of Ma Anan Sheila, hinted at potential violence. She said, we are here in Oregon to stay at at whatever the cost. If that means some blood is spilled, then this is the price we are prepared to pay. Which, why why would that be necessary? Well, we'll get into that. (laughs) So then they show a man in all blue wearing a turban with a long gray beard, and they say that a guru from India named Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, who is often referred to as just the Bhagwan, started a farming commune in 1981. After two years, and get this fucking fact, $30 million, the 64,000-acre organic farming and meditation compound had its own post office, school, hospital, shopping mall, and housed over a 1,000 followers. So this cult is no fucking joke. Yeah, if, if something has its own post office, that's pretty legit. This is what they sort of left out of... So I, if you want to listen to a really good podcast about this cult, 99% Invisible has oh. an episode. I think, I forget what number. We'll put it in the show notes. All about the Rajneeshis. This guy, this the Bhagwan, was a quote-unquote guru in India. Sure. But actually what he really wanted to do was just fuck everything with two legs and get a ton of money. I so mean, he yeah. made this... this sham religion and he did do some things like he founded this type of meditation where you like quiet your mind and then you start freaking out and it's supposed to I forget what it's called but it's I think people still do it today and but he like fled India because they started investigating his religion as not being a religion because over there if you're a church or a religious organization you don't have to pay taxes well, kind of sure. seemed like he wasn't just in it to make a bunch of money so <laughs> and not have to pay taxes. So he and his followers fled India and settled in Oregon. And they had communes all over all over the world. So this was like a huge business. But the, where they chose to settle in Oregon had was zoned for agriculture. So they couldn't just put up a bunch of houses. Oh. However, at the time, the law in Oregon said that if you have, I think, a a hundred people or 150 people or something. Maybe it's a thousand. I can't remember, but it was a very small number. You could incorporate a town. Like that's all you needed. You didn't need anything else. So base and the, and if you could incorporate a town, according to the law at the time, you could put up your own like post office. Well, you could put up your own permit office. So okay. you could issue residential permits to yourself, basically. So they had uh, enough people to incorporate. So they did. And there was nothing anyone could do about it. Of course, environmental agencies started suing them. And that's when they started feeling under attack or whatever, and they started arming their police force. Anyway, we'll get to all of that. Whoa. But they, basically the people of Oregon didn't want them around, and they were kind of dicks as well. So it was sort of their fault. So 
in the you see footage there's a lot of video footage which this episode is worth watching just for the video yeah of this it's cult. fascinating because the narrator says that Rajneesh would drive around the compound each day in one of his 80 Rolls Royces. That's a lot. Yeah, Robert Stack has two. Robert Stack only has two. What do you need 80 the for? The Bhagwan had 80. The guru preached the benefits of meditation and free love while his followers, um, I wrote down, white people danced, played flutes, and threw flowers on him, weeping openly. Every sure. day this happened. He would just drive around his compound. He claimed to have had more sex partners than anyone in history, which is super gross. <laughs> <laughs> they took over a nearby town called Antelope because they wanted to have a majority seat on the city council and the school board, which, of course, horrified the residents of the town. Basically, what they did was they moved into this town. Sure, and there's they enough started, of them. that Exactly. They took over the city council. They took over the school board. They started harassing people. The people of Oregon, I guess they put up businesses all around. Like, they had a hotel in Portland that got firebombed because Whoa. people were so against them. And people in Oregon would drive around with bumper stickers that said, better dead than red. Whoa. Which was, of course, I mean, they all wore red. So, yeah, this was a tense time in this area. Crazy. Yeah, because what was happening was people were putting pressure on them. To get them out, basically. So environmental yeah. organizations were like, you can't put up a huge city in the middle of the desert when it's zoned for agriculture and you're not doing anything to protect the environment. You're just willy-nilly right. farming. Right. And then the residents were like, these people harass us and we don't like them. So they started doing things like enacting laws, like the changing the laws so that they could try to get them out of here. So then the Rajneeshis responded by saying, we're going to take over the city and get and just vote our own people into office so that we can change the laws for us. It was this huge, sure, huge thing. A year after the outbreak, the Rajneeshis were becoming more and more paranoid. This is when they were getting a lot of external pressures and they basically thought they were being persecuted. They were being investigated for possible immigration fraud in addition, and they were gro- there was a growing internal conflict between Sheila, who was the Bhagwan's right-hand woman, and other commune leaders, because all of their leaders were super rich and were huh. just fighting with each other. Meanwhile, there were um, just normal people living in this compound that were being forced to work like 16-hour days, and they did. In the podcast I listened to, they said that they bust in over 4,000 homeless people from around the country to try and increase their votes. So they would say, here, we'll give you housing, even though they gave them like subpar housing and they would give them like drugs to try and keep them in line. Oh my God. Yeah, this whole thing is is bananas. Like Liz said. This is even crazier than I thought. So as you can imagine, there was a fuck ton of money in this thing. Groups started to form among the cult leadership. Well, if you have 80 Rolls Royces, I mean. Yes. Like, internal factions started to form because all of their leaders were wealthy elites to begin with, and then they were just breaking in all kinds of additional money. And these factions struggled for control of both the Bhagwan and the cult's finances. So basically, whoever had, like, the Bhagwan's ear was in control and could get all kinds of money. So there was infighting among the leadership. But then, so there's, they're trying to investigate these people because they think that they're responsible for the outbreak. Former cult members started squealing. They told of plans to assassinate all kinds of people, local politicians, rival cult leaders, a U.S. attorney, and even the journalist that I mentioned at the beginning, Les Zeitz, in retaliation for investigative pieces he had run in local newspapers. But as the cult became 
um, came under more and more scrutiny, the Bhagwan stepped up security. At times, he would drive around the compound in a bulletproof limo, surrounded by a caravan of SUVs full of armored guards and a fucking armed helicopter flying overhead. What? Yes. <laughs> yes. He had a helicopter? He had multiple helicopters that had, like, weapons. They were, like, weaponized helicopters. How they did, had a... How did this place that's just people meditating and farming get so much money? Just rich people I think joining he had, the cult? Yes. It was that. Yeah. Well, they would force people to give up everything. So people would join the cult. They would sell their home. They would sell all their worldly possessions and then give all that money and to then the Bhagwan. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And they had, I mean, they had like a hotel. They had all over the, they had compounds all over the world. They had them in other countries. They had business stuff. It's I'm crazy. sure. They were wealthy to begin with before they, you know, the leaders even joined the cult. And he had that like meditation thing going on in India where okay. he didn't have to pay taxes. So there was a ton of money. They had an airport in this town. They had, well, I think it was like an airstrip, wow. like not a whole airport, because the Bhagwan had like three jets. private jets. Yeah, okay. Sure, yeah. as you do. I also have three private jets. <laughs> and 80 Rolls Royces. And 80 Rolls Royces. They showed footage of what looks like military boot camp style training, people running and crawling through obstacles and training with automatic weapons. It's crazy. And what they would do was they would, they would take these videos and they would send them to news outlets around to be, to like threaten, sure. right? Like, look at, we have this, they called it the peace force too, which is ridiculous. Yeah. You're arming your peace force with fully automatic weapons. All right. Sounds sure. peaceful to me. That's what we should have called this podcast. Yeah. The investigators basically said that they were up against a small personal army. Which, which they were. Yes. Yeah. And of course, rumors began to circulate that the cult had been experimenting with biological weapons, including salmonella, but there was no hard evidence at this point. So I wrote, Q science. <laughs> Thank you, forensic science. You solve everything. Oh, yes. So in 1985, the Bhagwan was indicted for lying on his visa application and arranging sham marriages so that his followers could remain in the United States. Okay. Which allowed officials to search the compound. They asked epidemiologist Mike Skeels to come along because they feared that there could be biological retaliation. So they didn't know what they were cooking up in this sure. compound. Fortunately, no shots were fired. However, in the compound's medical facility, Skeels found samples of bacteria along with standard testing material for a small clinic. But he had been told to look for samples of salmonella. So he took several vials that contained salmonella um, and seized them into evidence. But at that point, he wasn't thinking that it was related to the outbreak because it had been several years since then. Shortly before the raid, Rajneesh left in one of his private jets, <laughs> but he was arrested in North Carolina on the immigration charges. Meanwhile, the CDC tested the sample of salmonella seized from the compound using a, te te a technique called plasmid profiling. Uh-huh, absolutely. According to Forensic Files, plasmids are sections of free-floating genetic material outside of the bacterial chromosome, and they can do all kinds of stuff with the plasma. I'm not going to go into it. But if the plasmids match, then you can safely assume that the two samples are from the same or similar strain. And of course, the plasmids from the samples they took from the compound match the ones from the outbreak. They also discovered that both samples could be killed using all types of antibiotics. So they were the same. Skeels said that it was the smoking gun. It showed them that the sample from the clinic were the same as the bacterial strain from the outbreak. So at this point, they know that the cult was responsible for the outbreak mm -hmm. in the Dales. Sure. 
After this, the discovery of the bacteria, investigators discovered other alarming things. First, Sheila had installed surveillance cameras all over town. This, yeah, this blew my mind. <laughs> every payphone and every building was bugged. The investigators said that it was the largest case of wiretapping in the history of the United States. She had the entire compound under surveillance mm-hmm. at all times. They also did things, which this was in the podcast I listened to, like sedating people who were like dissenters for days. Oh no. They did forced sterilizations. Oh my God. They would drug people, like I said earlier, with antipsychotics to keep them in line. It was not good. (laughs) It was not a very, a peaceful organic farming community. Like they would have you believe. No. Most of the Rajneeshis, just the regular people who lived in the town and were a part of the cult, didn't know that they were being spied on. Sheila also held secret meetings either in her bedroom on her round bed or in private rooms that had escape tunnels. Yeah, there was like secret tunnels and secret rooms. And I mean, as a cult compound should have. Oh, sure. But you wouldn't think that they would actually, you know what I mean? Like, that seems like something from Scooby-Doo. Yeah. But I was like, no, they really had everyone under surveillance. There was just these banks of tape recorders running all times. Oh, yeah, for sure. There were secret tunnels. There was, yeah, like escape routes. And- it was crazy. And the FBI also found manuals for making bombs and other information and samples of worse things than salmonella. So they could have potentially done a oh, worse sure. bioterror yeah. attack than just salmonella. So the question then was, why did they poison an entire town? Well, basically, they wanted to sicken local voters so that they couldn't get to their polling places. Thereby, the Rajneeshis would win local elections. Of course, that's not what happened. They did a test run before the election where they walked around town with little spray bottles full of salmonella and squirted it on, like, um fruit at a local market and doorknobs. And that one didn't work. No No one got sick. There was evidence that they tried to put salmonella in the water supply, but that was unsuccessful. They don't know why they didn't succeed in doing that. Finally, what they did was they sprayed salad bars. So they would go to restaurants, (laughs) they would order a lunch, and then they would spray the cold salad bars because you just go up and you scoop up your salad and you eat it. So think about that next time you're at the salad (sighs) bar. Not only did someone breathe, like lots of people have (laughs) coughed on all of that food, someone in a cult, may have sprayed salmonella on your food because they didn't want you to vote. We should have given a warning at the top of this episode not to watch this before your Thanksgiving dinner. I mean, you're probably not getting Thanksgiving dinner at a salad bar. That's true. So... But if you are, if you are, think twice If about you're about it. to head out to the Golden Corral, yeah, chances are this isn't going to happen, but... This is just, this is one of those, like, stranger-than-fiction things it's where so it's like... crazy. You couldn't make this up. Yeah, um... But the crazy part is, is that even though they sickened 700 people, oh, not a single Rajneeshi won. A, it didn't work. Won a seat in their local no. election. No, no one. It was, which is kind of like a funny fuck you. <laughs> it just ruined some local restaurants. Yeah, basically. So there was no proof that the Rajneeshi, that Rajneesh, the Bhagwan, knew about what Sheila and her right were doing. And still to this day, no one really knows. He was convicted on the charges and deported. Uh, it said that 21 countries refused to take him. <laughs> Finally, he went back to India, and yeah. he started a new spiritual practice. He's He became known as uh, Osho, O-S-H-O, Osho. Oh, okay. Osho. 
And people still circulate his quotes on social media, which I find hilarious. If you, like, if you have a, you know, the the girl you went to school with who now, like, sells pyramid scheme lipstick and (laughs) posts inspirational photos on her Instagram page all the time. Because if you Google O-S-H-O, you'll find his quotes all over Google Images, and wow. it's it's set on, like, a mountainscape, right? Sure. And it's, I mean, they sound like very inspirational quotes that I could see why they would resonate with people, but clearly the people who are sharing this don't know that he may or may not have been responsible for <laughs> a salmonella outbreak. Which is not that inspirational. Actually, I just don't want to share a quote from someone that owns 80 Rolls Royces. Uh, no. Excessive. Because... He wasn't actually interested in a spiritual practice. Oh, he just no, wanted clearly, to, no. He just wanted to make a bunch of money and have sex with a lot of people. Yeah, if you're telling people, like, you're a member of KISS, that you have had those <laughs> most sexual partners of all time, that's that's not about spirituality. And at all. <laughs> no. no. He just wanted to make a lot of money and... Get a lot of buy, Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So... That's funny. Uh, Sheila and this woman who ran the hospital, it's not clear to me... They were convicted, and they were either convicted of 20 years or three years. It's really, it's not, regardless Somewhere in there. Yeah. I've heard different things, but they only served two or three years in prison and were released. And depending on what source you're getting your information from, they may or may not have been preparing state charges against them. But they fled the country, and Sheila started a nursing home in the U.K., Which is terrifying. Yeah, one guy that they interviewed, I think it was Les, the reporter, said that's kind of a scary thought to hand Grandma over to Sheila in her final days. Yeah. So She she may be wiretapping your grandma. Oh, yeah, probably is. And if your grandma steps out of line, poison for her. (laughs) So hopefully that's not where your grandma is. And today, that compound still exists. It is now a Christian youth camp. It's the largest one. What? My yes. eyes just got so big. That's terrifying. Don't go there. I mean, I guess I have to do something with that building. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's now a, under county jurisdiction, so it's no longer. I just wouldn't like want to a, stay there personally. Yeah, it's apparently like yeah, it's apparently just as big as it ever was. They'll use the airstrip to fly in international campers, and kids will go there for a week and play basketball and sure learn about Jesus, sing worship songs. I guess do whatever you do at Christian camp. Hopefully, not make vials of salmonella. <laughs> Let's hope not. They probably eat potato salad, though. Pro- possibly from a salad bar. Most likely. No so. one no one learned a lesson from this. Yeah, so that was long because it was crazy. It's but crazy. that was, did we say, so that was also in oh, Election yeah. 8, and it's episode 33, Bioattack. Bioattack. So if you want to go watch it, I highly recommend, even though we told you basically everything, I highly recommend watching it just for the video footage because it's, 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 it's crazy, crazy, and the scope of this thing is crazy bananas yeah i rarely enjoy a forensic files that isn't about a murder like every so often it's about arson boring (laughs) or there's one about like a ship crashing into a bridge what don't waste my time forensic files but this (laughs) so oh man fascinating yeah i really enjoyed it really it's you couldn't be more entertained at a 22 minute episode (laughs) episode of television totally what do you got next Oh, I'm going to, speaking of puns, <laughs> I'm talking about the episode Perfect Match, which is also in Collection 8, Episode 32. 
Yeah, this this one's also fascinating to me. I'm is, really excited which to hear you talk about this one. Which is why we're talking about it. So a young woman vanished from her home in rural Canada. She lived in Prince Edward Island, which is Canada's smallest province. This was in October 7th, 1994. A woman called police to report an abandoned car without license plates. They looked inside and they found a crime scene. The interior of the car was covered in blood spatter, which was deemed medium impact blood spatter, which would be from a beating. Um, the owner of the car was 32-year-old Shirley, oh, I don't remember, Duggett, something like that. I'm sorry, Shirley. She was a mother of five. She was from the small town of Melvin. No one had reported her missing. Um, the pillow that she sat on while driving was found nearby and it was soaked in blood. She was a very small, petite woman. So, um, people knew that she sat on this pillow to sort of like prop herself up in the car and they found that covered in blood. Um, that is like the cutest thing ever though. Someone, yeah. this little woman sitting on a pillow to drive. I know. <laughs> That's really cute. Oh, I feel so bad. Um, the blood on the pillow was com- compared to her dad, Melvin, who... Samantha, I'm going to need you to get me a screenshot of Melvin. <laughs> he is just the most adorable old man. We see him, yes. like, at the window with a pipe. He's <laughs> always wearing this, like, little hat, and I, I can't even explain how amazing his outfit is. No mustache, surprisingly. Well, but, um, you know. Anyway, Melvin, my heart goes out to you. Uh, so her the blood on the pillow was confirmed compared to Melvin's and was confirmed to be hers. Uh, there was also a second blood source. The Mounties launched a huge search. They covered over 100 miles of land in every waterway in the area. They, <laughs> This cop is quoted as saying, we used psychics, we used hypnosis, we used <laughs> every means available to us, which, okay, well, whatever. I'm glad that they, they pulled out all the stops to try to find Shirley. Um, they found a shovel half a mile from her car, and then 15 miles from the car, police found a plastic bag with sneakers and a blood-stained leather jacket. The blood matched Shirley's, as found on the pillow. Her dad, Melvin, suspected Shirley's estranged husband, Doug Beamish. Uh, Melvin just outright says, I wish I had killed Doug. <laughs> Which is amazing, coming from this, like... Tiny, adorable... Tiny, adorable old man who probably plays church bingo and... Oh, f- yeah, for sure. Yeah, makes his instant coffee every single morning. <laughs> He's like, man, I wish I had killed Doug. He was like, I'd be in jail, but at least my daughter would be okay. Oh, I know. So Doug was an abusive a-hole, and <laughs> he also wore the same size sneakers as the police found. Oh. The police got a warrant to make casts of Doug's feet. I love those. Which I have not heard of before. I mean, I guess you could then put the casts in the same shoe. Right. They used, I just, the idea of getting a warrant to make a, like, plaster <laughs> Paris cast of someone's feet. is hilarious. And then they used that to compare the wear, the wear pair patterns in the shoes that they found. That was a match. Doug denied owning the shoes in the leather jacket, but the jacket contained 20 white, brittle hairs. They were not human hairs. Perhaps from the title of this episode, you guessed. (laughs) What kind of hairs they were. perfect match. They were from a cat. (laughs) And it was not just any cat, Forensic Files files tells you. It was a pure white one. Oh. Yeah. Like a Persian. I don't know. What is the the white, the super fluffy white cats that rich people have? 
Sure, yeah. Maybe it was one of those. <laughs> Rich people cats. I just assume. I don't think that's true. That's just what I imagine. Yeah, when you're picturing like the evil villain like sitting on the plush oh, yeah. chair like petting it's a white. It's got the squished face in yeah. you know, and it, it looks kind of mad all the time. Yeah. And it's super fluffy and white and you know that our house is covered in white cat hair. Well, except that their maid has to like clean it up all day. Well, of course. They have just like a cat hair maid. Just that's, one maid just for cat hair. Yeah, that's their job. Could they scientifically prove that the hairs belong to Doug's cat, Snowball? <laughs> Could they? <laughs> Could they? Tell me, Liz. Forensic testing. Why is his name is Snowball? I know. That's the I like, yeah, this guy's an abusive a-hole, but he does have a cat named Snowball. It just shows you <laughs> that people are complicated. Um, forensic testing on cat hair had never been done before. They showed a reenactment of a cop picking up a phone and, and <laughs> hanging it up to show him calling all over the world to try to find <laughs> a, forensic a information. cat hair forensic yes. scientist. He eventually contacted Dr. O'Brien, an expert in hereditary cat illnesses, and which how do you become an expert in that? I don't. I mean, I don't hereditary think, cat illnesses. I don't think I want to become an, an expert in that. <laughs> They they uh, did go on to say that Snowball was not at all cooperative with <laughs> the police. With the police? Well, why would he be? I mean, why would Show he Show me the warrant. Yeah. Well, they said that they did read the cat's rights to the owners. And Melvin asked what the cat said. And the cops just said, meow. So. I'm picturing Snowball in an interrogation room with just ah! one, one swinging light. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Give us cops. the hair, Snowball. Well, it turns out. Like good cop, bad cop with Snowball. The DNA matched. Whoa. I mean, why would we talk, be talking about this of if it didn't? Not. Yeah. Except that it is hilarious, this uncooperative <laughs> cat in a police excavation. Anyway, but Prince Edward Island is isolated and has thousands of cats. Was it possible? This is a real thing that they said in front. This sentence is amazing. Was it possible because of inbreeding, isolation, or just plain feline promiscuity <laughs> that other cats on the island have the same DNA profile? Was Snowball a whore? Just I going mean, around a cat about town? Just yes. knocking up cats cat all over the island? On a hot tin roof, yes. <laughs> I mean, I like that they found that the DNA was match. But then they really wanted to do their due, due diligence and said, but does that matter? <laughs> Are all of these cats related? What was the frequency? Does snowball? Oh, snow. I'm just picturing Snowball's thousands of little kitty yeah, children. Yeah, thousands and thousands. He's, you know he's not paying child support on all those <laughs> kittens. No. Snowball is a deadbeat, just like Doug. <laughs> uh, so what was the frequency of this cat DNA profile? Well, they tested 20 cats on the island to find out. <laughs> Like stray cats? Were they out just like chasing down cats <laughs> in the street? Like, did they read all of those cats' owners their rights? Maybe these were just like cats owned by members of the police force. I don't know. <laughs> it said 20 cats were, they said 20 cats were t- tested and showed diverse genetics. And the odds that another one had the same markers as Snowball was estimated to be one in 70 million. Okay. So, yeah, Doug, it was your cat. <laughs> After this happened, a fisherman found Shirley's body on a riverbank in a shallow grave, which the psychic said would happen. But you know what? I could have said that would happen, too. <laughs> Does Doug seem like the type of person that would take the time to dig a deep grave? No. Probably not. Are we blaming Doug for something that his cat may have done, though? <laughs> I mean, if the DNA matches Snowball, Snowball. what is Snowball's alibi? 
That's Ooh. what I want to know. Does Snowball have a motive? Well, do you think that Snowball could be responsible for death by blunt force trauma <laughs> and break Shirley's jaw in three places? Well, maybe he was a strong cat. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Cats, there's some pretty big cats. <laughs> <laughs> You're not going to let this go. It was Snowball. Dog is an innocent man. I want to see that mugshot of Snowball. <laughs> yeah. Um, Shirley had been so badly beaten that one of her teeth was found in her lung. Oh, my God. Yeah. I take back what I said about Snowball. It wasn't Snowball. Doug's an asshole. Yep. Doug Beamish was arrested. His blood was, it turned out that it was his blood that was in her car. So did they really need the cat DNA? I I don't know. It turned out that Doug had also written Shirley a letter in his own blood. What? Saying he would kill her before letting her have custody of the children. Wait a second. Stop for one second. He wrote a letter to her in his blood. Yes. Like Like he cut himself and used a a feather pen or something. (laughs) He dipped it in his blood and wrote. They show a little reenactment of this. And Melvin show, says, well, it wasn't only a one-page letter, mind you. What? However. It was multiple pages? No. Oh, it was, it was a one-page. He page. was saying it was in his own, it, it was only one page, but it was a one-page letter <laughs> in, his in own blood. blood saying, I will kill you before I let you have custody of the children. Oh, yeah. So Snowball pretty, could not have done that. That's pretty damning evidence. Yeah. I'm think? not sure they really needed the what? cat DNA, but. What a fucking psycho. They also, he was photographed wearing the jacket the day before the murder, the jacket he claimed he didn't own. Okay, dog. The, the, the cat hair was was found on. And so Forensics Files tells you that petting the cat before the murder would be his downfall. <laughs> this was the first time animal DNA was used to convict a murderer. And wow. after this case, the Dr. O'Brien has been contacted from all over the world for people trying to use Good animal time. hair to convict other murderers. Nice. So, I it's a sad case for Shirley. It is a hilarious case in terms of the idea of, uh, yeah, interrogating Snowball and reading Snowball's rights. Oh um, also, Did they just meow his rights to him? I mean. They have the translator? Yeah. <laughs> meow, meow. Meow, 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 meow. You have the right to remain silent. Um, yeah, this is another just amazing episode. Uh, and you learn a little something about DNA, I think. Say again what, what this episode was this is. Perfect Match, uh, Season 8, Episode 22. So you can watch Worth this watching. and Biotech back-to-back. Yes. It's a good, it's a good time. So <laughs> I highly recommend it. Crazy episodes in Season 8. Mm-hmm. Should we do the last one? Yes, why not? This is actually the last one in Season 8. This is Breaking the Mold. What do you think it's going to be about from that title, listeners? Just think about it for a second. <laughs> breaking the mold. Breaking the mold. Okay. Uh-huh, okay. So a young couple had everything. Successful careers, money, time to enjoy it, and a home fit for movie stars. Then everything changed. Their three-year-old son developed serious respiratory problems, and his father started showing signs of Alzheimer's. Forensic scientists had to find out if this was bad luck, bad genes, or something more. Dun, dun, dun. Dripping Springs, Texas is a half hour from Austin. Melinda Ballard fell in love with Dripping Springs and bought a Georgian-style mansion on 72 acres of land. In 1994, she met Ron, Ron Allison, and after dating for less than a year, they married. They both had prestigious jobs and were very wealthy. 
1996, Melinda gave birth to their son, Reese. And then in February 1991, three-year-old Reese developed flu-like symptoms. He started having trouble catching his breath, and the symptoms lingered for over a month, by which time he started getting worse instead of better. And Melinda kind of brushed it off as like, well, he goes to daycare and daycares. Sure. Kids, kids in daycare pass around yes. diseases like it's candy. So maybe that's why. But soon Reese's problems became neurological. He had learned his ABCs from A to Z, but then seemingly overnight couldn't get past D anymore. His parents said that he was suddenly deteriorating quickly. They went to doctor after doctor, but all... The doctors said that something was wrong with him, but they didn't know what. They also did allergy testing on Reese, and that came up negative. After a while, it seemed like the stress of Ron's son's illness was getting to him. One coworker reported seeing Ron one day staring blankly at a black computer screen. Which, is that really a sign of anything? He just didn't want to work. No. Let the guy take a break. If that was the only thing, I might have agreed with that. <laughs> you know. Also, I wrote down that one time he couldn't remember where he parked his car, and I was like, I do that all the time. Yeah, but it took him five hours to find it. Yeah, that is pretty bad. He apparently would come out of the grocery store, and not only would he not know where he parked, but he would forget what his car even looked like. And there were days when he would return from the grocery store after five hours when it should have taken him maybe 20 minutes. All the groceries would be melted. Melinda would be like, what the fuck? And he would be like, I think I blacked out, which is not normal. Neurologists told Ron that he was suddenly halfway through the progression of Alzheimer's, but they didn't know why why it came on so so suddenly or what to even do about it. On April 1st, 1991, Melinda took a flight to Arkansas. She sat next to a man named Bill Holder, who overheard her complaining to someone else about all of the illnesses her and her family were going through. Suddenly, she started coughing up blood, and Bill said, what the fuck is wrong with you, lady? (laughs) And asked her if she had a water leak in her home, to which she said, yes, I do. I have several water leaks. Holder just happened, by coincidence, to own an air quality business that removes toxic mold from buildings. He told her that he thought she probably had mold in her home as a result of the water leaks. Crazily, though, Melinda dismissed him because she kept a clean house and no one in her family tested positive for allergies. Oh my god, Melinda. Also, if someone on my flight was talking about all of their family's illnesses... (laughs) Uh, so annoying. Please don't do that. On the, it's not it's not chat time. Don't do that. However, if you do, maybe you'll happen to be sitting next to a guy I who mean, can solve all your problems. I mean, this worked out for her, but in general, yuck. So she was basically saying, no, my family tested negative for allergies. I keep my house very clean and tidy. And then he literally said, these aren't allergies, lady. This is a poison. And that stuck with her. So she got... <laughs> Yeah. (laughs) So when she got home, she decided to move her family out of the main house and into the apartment over the garage. However, Ron continued to get worse. And basically, this property was gigantic. There was a man-made pond, which actually kind of looked more like a lake, a gazebo, a barn with horses, and the house itself was 12,000 square feet. It was modeled after the home in... Was it Gone with the Wind? Yes. I wrote down, no one needs a house this big. Oh, my God. It was When they said it was meant for movie stars, it really was. Also, every time they talked about her having a dream life, she was feeding swans in her man-made pond. So I just wrote down. Yeah, she stocked it with catfish. Dream life equals swans. 
Truly, <laughs> <laughs> she had a beautiful. When they say gazebo, like don't picture the little gazebo no, your parents was, have in their back, it was your like backyard. It's like you could get park. married in. Like yeah. it's humongous. Yeah. I actually thought it was like I'm like oh they're at a, a park somewhere because she no longer lives in her house. No, no, this was on the property. Oh, it's her house. Crazy. So now we bring in the forensic scientist and epidemiologist. She called Bill. He must have given her his business card or something. Been like, lady, when you lady, decide, when you decide that you're dying of poison, call me. <laughs> the forensic scientist explains how easily mold can grow in a home if there is water. It basically just needs cellulose, which is abundant in housing materials and oxygen. So all of your house is covered in mold, and all it takes is a little bit of water to get to grow. Kind yeah. of scary. Uh, no, this episode is terrifying, and I think about it all the time. Melinda asks Bill Holder to inspect their home. He takes a clean piece of packing tape and presses it against the suspected area and attaches it to a glass slide. Because there was one spot where they had a water leak. It was behind their fridge, so they moved all everything out of the way, and they tested that area. He would put the piece of plastic down where you thought maybe there was mold spores, then put the plastic on a glass slide. He would also take a sterile cotton swab and swab the area, take that as a sample. The one scientist who went in the house with Bill lasted only an hour before he walked out of the house and collapsed. Yeah. So something bad is going on. The sample slides are processed by examining them under a microscope, and then the samples taken with the swabs are incubated in Petri dishes. If spores are present, they'll grow mold. So what do you think happened, Liz? Yeah, their their house was full of deadly mold. Yeah, most whole household molds are harmless, according to forensic files, but scientists investigating this home found a toxic deadly mold known as Stachybotrys. Experts believe that stachybotrys spores exist on almost all building materials. And as long as. There's something to think about. Yeah, so it's probably all over your house. But as long as they stay dry, they're not an issue. The problem is when this mold does start to grow, it produces a deadly poison called mycotoxins. Later, Bill Holder conducted an airborne test, which showed that the mold was literally everywhere, including the garage apartment. So it was in the, there was mold spores in the air. It was all over the entire house. Nowhere was safe. They had to leave immediately and take none of their possessions because the possessions could have mold spores on them and yeah. it could contaminate wherever they go. So they literally had to leave this gigantic sprawling mansion with only probably not even the clothes on their backs. They probably, no, had, they to probably go, had to burn those, burn those and buy new clothes. Yeah. So they literally had nothing. Unfortunately, the damage had been done. Ron's brain damage could not be reversed. He still forgets things and has to carry a notebook with him. He also had to resign from his firm. Reese continued to suffer from asthma and learning disabilities. The cost estimate of the mold from the original cost estimate to clean up the mold was $1 million. And the insurance company offered less than 200000 However, after the initial investigation, they found 13 additional water leaks. And they ended up fighting with the insurance company for over two years. Because what had happened was they had the first water leak. And they wanted to... They wanted to fix the damage immediately. They wanted to clean sure. up the water damage. The insurance company said, no, you can't repair anything until, until we do an investigation. Right. And if you do any repairs while our quote-unquote investigation is going on, you will lose coverage. So they were forced, this original water leak that they knew about, they were forced to leave the damage because the insurance company wouldn't let them clean it up until they did whatever right. investigation they had to do. Meanwhile, there were other water leaks. Uh. And when they discovered all this, they said, we need to start repairs immediately. And the insurance company wanted to do additional investigations. So they fought for two years. 
By the time that the two years passed, the house was so contaminated that it was beyond repair, and experts concluded that the only resolution would be to completely demolish the house. They sued the insurance company, claiming that the insurance company knew or should have known of the dangerous effects of delaying repairs to water damage inside of the house. Melinda and Ron asked for the cost of the home and the property, which was about $6 million at the time. The jury took two and a half days to reach a verdict that awarded the couple $32 million for punitive damages, yeah. et cetera, all of their, you know, I think that's fair. Their, also their legal fees as well. But, the, of course, the insurance company appealed. The house has been abandoned. Ron is learning to live with his impaired memory. He has to use a handheld device to enter his daily schedule and then assign alarms to each task so it reminds him to stay yeah. on track. Um, Melinda created a website for insurance, insurance policyholders to help them know their rights. I wasn't able to find if they ever received their $32 million. What happened as a result of this is it kind of became the poster child of quote-unquote frivolous lawsuits, right, where companies say that it's like the hot coffee thing where people, now we have to put hot coffee is hot on the side of the cups, even though if you actually look into that case, it was an old lady who was burned severely. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, like... The insurance company didn't have to drag its feet. No. About it. Like, I understand that that they need to investigate claims, but they could have let them start making repairs. And they should have. by not letting them make repairs, this deadly mold grew. Yeah. So I I don't see it as frivolous at all. No, well, it wasn't, but it became this political thing. Yeah. Right, so lobbyists and insurance companies and lawmakers whose pockets are probably lined by the insurance companies made it like a like an issue where people are frivolously suing companies and they were basically duking it out. And I found a couple of articles from shortly after this that basically just talked about what everything said in forensic files and about how they were awarded the money and are still fighting to get the money. I was never able to find if anyone knows the resolution to this case and knows if they Melinda and Ron got their money I hope so. I mean, they have <laughs> they deserve permanent it. And, health problems. Well, and a jury of their peers decided this is what it's what not. What they, it's not even what they asked for. Yeah, they asked for six million. The jury said, "No, you deserve thirty-two million. Yeah, which is amazing. And I do think they deserve it because Ron has Alzheimer's at a young age. It's, I'm sure this Reese's is an absolute fucking nightmare. Health problems. Yeah, it's horrible. Um, I wrote down, "Fuck you, Michael." mycotoxins and <laughs> fuck you insurance companies yeah it's i think about this i wouldn't have thought i would think about a forensic files about mold all the time <laughs> but i do because it's terrifying it's so scary they didn't even know about these 13 other leaks in their house no and that this mold was growing and you, apparently you can't really see the mold because what no. they were shown in i don't know if it was a reenactment or what but when they were showing them taking the samples it didn't look like there was mold no. on what they were well, touching well it was just like in the air it was just the spores that are yeah. floating around in the air so fucking terrifying i mean i used to have an apartment with a not properly ventilated bathroom that mold just like grew on the ceiling all the time and yikes. i would look at it and go that's going to be is the it end. killing me yeah that's going to be the end of me yikes that's probably stacky botrus right there i would think <laughs> Fortunately, oh. most household molds aren't dangerous. No, but, but this one type I mean, is. If and you're having some weird respiratory problems and you don't know why, maybe mm. look into mold. Yeah, I mean, it's Yikes. terrifying. I when I was buying this house, I wanted 
to be assured that there was no stacky potras. <laughs> but then the like inspection thing specifically is like we don't look for mold. And I was like, Oh, great. I probably have stacky potras right now. <laughs> it sounds this is, like this it haunts you. me. This this haunts me. It's terrifying. If, there, if it's any consolation, it sounds like you're affected by this really quickly. Like the one scientist that was investigating the house after an hour. Fell down. Fell down. Yeah. He said he lost the ability to stand without assistance. Which That's is crazy. Yeah. So Melinda I mean, seemed was, basically immune for whatever reason. It was strange that she... She I mean, had she, some issues. Like she was coughing up blood at one point, but she had no lasting she, effects. Yeah, she recovered. And sadly, her son and her husband didn't. And it's because of spores. I know. What? Wild. Murderous mold spores. Murderous toxic spores. So if you want to watch Breaking the Mold, (laughs) that'll be season eight on Netflix, episode 48. I'm glad we got to talk about some forensic files today. It was fun. I liked it. It it has a little more closure Mm -hmm. than Unsolved Mysteries. Uh, You don't get the cool synth music. No, that's true. Uh, Not as many mustaches. No. Unfortunately. I was going to pick, if we were going to do a most valuable mustache, there was a a CDC dude. I remember him. Yeah, from the uh, bio attack episode that he had. But it's just pretty much a cop mustache. I think so. He was my favorite mustache, I would say. It's just a gray, silver you know, mm-hmm. copy full mustache. Well groomed. Well groomed. I remember which one you're talking about. He had pride in his mustache. He did. Yeah. I feel like he's probably the winner. Um, forensic files don't usually t- tend to be very mysterious because forensic solves the case. Right. It's just, occasionally there's one where forensics exonerates someone and they don't know who did it, and you're watching that at midnight, and then you go, "Oh, the killer's probably in my yard and coming to kill me right now." <laughs> oh, probably. Which I'm still alive, despite being convinced of that a couple times. So I don't know that we should really rate it on mysteriousness or no, but I would give these. I would say five out of five Robert Stacks. Yeah, these are solid episodes. These were solid cherry picked. Which, are, yeah, of course we picked our favorite ones. Yeah, but. yeah, these are ones that have stayed with me and I'll refer to as I freak out about Stacky Botrys or Salad Bars. Or, or Murderous Cats Named Snowball. Murderous Cats Named Snowball. Or, yeah, every so often when I'm trying to talk about science things, I'll be like, did you know that you can get DNA from cats and use it in murder investigations? I saw that in Friends of Isles. <laughs> People immediately just walk away. Yeah, people are like, Liz, you need to stop talking about <laughs> files. And then they just are gone. Yeah. That's that's a little window into my sad life. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Yes, happy Thanksgiving. Thanks for listening to our bonus episode. Yeah, so we're going to pretend that we're lifestyle bloggers. And I'm going to put on, an, at least temporarily, a new section on our website that's a holiday shopping guide. Yes, I have things to give to you so, for our guide. If you go to perhapsitsyou.com, I'm going to make a separate page for it. Sadly, no one paid us to make these recommendations. Sadly. I wish they had. Yeah, we're not sponsored by any of these companies. No. Most of what I have to contribute to the list are, like, strange things I found on Etsy. Because here's the thing. If you yourself are a weirdo like us. Yeah. Or if you have weirdos in your life that are kind of hard to shop for. We got got your back. Maybe you need some suggestions. Or maybe we just felt like telling you what to do. Maybe Maybe, you didn't need the suggestions. Maybe this is our wish list and you should, like, send (laughs) some stuff our way. I'm not saying you have to. (laughs) Yes. But take a look. I just, yeah, we curated a little holiday shopping guide for weirdos. Because we wanted to. Yeah. Uh, Two things that I'm going to include on my list, which 
no one gave me a free copy of, and no one paid me to say, which is sad in both counts. Uh, for people of any gender that like feminine things, the Glamour Ghoul box. Yes. I recently, this is a subscription box, but you can also buy them individually. They are curated by theme. I recently bought for myself the paranormal box and then proceeded to brag to Samantha about every single (laughs) item that was in the box and send her a photo of it because I was absolutely so thrilled with everything that I got. We are burning a sage candle Right now. So it smells great. That I got in that box. I got this necklace that wards off ghosts that was made by, let me see here, Gorgeous Laboratory. It's a necklace for paranormal protection. Amazing. It can includes a mirror and some stones that mean different things. If you go on the website, you can see past boxes. Yeah. I want to go back and buy all of them retroactively. I know. Sadly, they're you can't, amazing. but they're all sold out. You can find the Etsy shops, though, if, you, That's there's, true. A, if there's a specific item there's you want. There's a cool thing. So some upcoming themes they have is Memento Mori. That sounds good. The Truth is Out There is an upcoming theme. The Adams Family is coming up. I think in like a year is the craft, and I already want that box. Oh, I can't wait. Um, so if you are shopping for someone that likes like jewelry and candles and makeup, they also do like an Ipsy bag, a Glamour Ghoul makeup bag for mm-hmm. 10 bucks that has different sort of indie makeup for spooky people. Yes. <laughs> Samples. <laughs> so I might need to get that for myself too. Also, if you have a child or are shopping for a child, I have a recommendation courtesy of our resident librarian. There is a graphic novel about the Donner Party. (laughs) Just what every kid wants. Just what every kid wants called Donner Dinner Party. It is part of the Hazardous Tales series by Nathan Hale. Yes. It tells you the historically accurate tale of what happened to the Donner Party. It is recommended for ages 8 to 12. I love it. I think all children need to read it. Yes. So two of the items from my list that I'm providing to our curated gift shopping list is I try to find some local shops to us. Oh, awesome. So some Minnesota shops. There's one that I've purchased from before, and it's an Etsy shop that makes sassy dog tags. So if you are shopping for a dog lover, I should get one of those for Lenny. Yes, the Etsy shop is all one word. It's bad tags. And the one that I'm linking to, which is my favorite, it just says cute as fuck. Love it. And you can get them in any different color. There's tons of ones that are breed specific. They're all super sassy. They have holiday ones. They have one that I got for a friend of mine's male dog that says got lost looking for bitches. (laughs) Sure. Which I think is just hilarious. (laughs) There are ones that are like, oh, fuck, I'm lost. You know, things like that. (laughs) So I think it's they're super cute. They're really bright colors. You can have them, you know, personalized to your dog or a friend's dog. I also found a book that I think would be good for children, specifically girls. This is something that I'm getting for Travis's niece. And the book is called... Don't listen, Travis's niece. uh, I don't think she's listening to this. (laughs) It's called Goodnight Stories for Rebel Girls. And it's not super weird. But what it is, is it's a book of 100 different female figures throughout history. And it's a storybook, so it t- each page tells a story of the woman. There was, like, Michelle Obama is featured in the first book, um, famous painters throughout history, famous astronauts. Yeah, that's awesome. There's 100 in the first book. There's now a second volume, and all of the images of the women are done by female artists around the world. It was the most crowdfunded 
book in history. Wow. And yeah, that's, that's good, really cool. Good night stories for rebel girls. I think it, but their whole thing is like throw away the princesses and here's some like actually awesome yeah, people. learn about actual awesome women. You know, Jane Goodall is in the first one. I can't remember all of sure. them, but I, I purchased it off Amazon um, yeah, those are some of the ones. There's going to be more on our list. I think we're each contributing like five or six. Yeah. So just whatever we're telling you that you should buy, possibly for us, or possibly <laughs> these companies should send us free stuff. Yeah. yeah. Duh. Yeah. Um, so we're so thankful for your list, for you, five listeners. I'm so thankful for this podcast. Our Listening listeners are so awesome. We're getting yeah. the most amazing feedback. On our iTunes reviews, on our Facebook reviews, we're getting messages that are so sweet. I have no idea how you found us, but I... No clue. (laughs) A lot of people leave reviews saying that they don't even listen to Unsolved Mysteries. How do these people find us? I don't know, but I really am thankful. This is so much fun. We love doing it. Um, Yeah. It's really, yeah, been a good addition to our lives. We're excited to to keep going, keep doing it. So I hope you enjoy your Thanksgiving weekend. I hope you get some time... Not just with your family, but also to yourself to binge watch the TV of your choice. Yeah. Perhaps not Forensic Files. Perhaps not Unsolved Mysteries. Perhaps not. Whatever whatever makes you happy. Relax. Put on a Korean sheet mask and uh, (laughs) eat some pie. You know, take care of yourself as well. Yeah. And thank you so much for listening. Thank you. Bye. Bye.